For those of you joining us, we are in week two of our uh, series on the Holy Spirit, just a five-week series, and uh, there is handouts at the back of the room if you want to follow along, and you will need one of those, so I would be sure and grab one. Um, there's discussion questions on there and, and the kind of the outline of the sermon. You know, Jesus didn't come into this world to try to tune it up, fix it up, renovate it, reform it. He didn't come into this world just to kind of take what was a little broken and make it a little better. He came into this world to do an entirely new thing, a system reset, a full recreation, a full new birth. That's what Jesus came to do. He was the beginning of an entirely new reality that is now breaking into this world because of Jesus, because of what Jesus did, because of his burial, life, death, resurrection, and ascension. And now through the church, Jesus is breaking into this world with an entirely new world. There's a lot of people in our culture today that think or operate under the idea that humans are basically good, just in the need of a little therapy, right? just in the need of a little bit of counseling or just a little bit of friendship or just someone to believe in you. The Bible does not operate under such a paradigm. Humanity is broken systemically, deeper than any of us can possibly imagine. And the answer, the good news to a broken world is an entirely new one. Why don't you open your Bibles, turn to John chapter 3. We're going to start here. As you know, this is a topical series, but we're going to be in a lot of Bible this morning, so get your fingers nimble and ready to flip around or scroll. We're going to start with an interesting conversation that Jesus had with a man named Nicodemus. It says in John 3, verse 1, it says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. So Jesus comes into contact here with really the perfect archetype or the the perfect poster child of the religious system of his day. See, Nicodemus was was not only a highly religious man, he he was kind of the ultimate man of his day within the, the thinking of Judaism and what it had become largely under the Pharisees. And Nicodemus operated under this thinking that he really wasn't in any danger of not inheriting eternal salvation. For two reasons. One, because he was ethnically a Jew. You know, it's funny, we think a lot about, uh, or, or as evangelicals, Christians, we talk a lot about salvation. We need to be saved. The Jews didn't think a lot about salvation because they assumed they were saved because they were Jews. They were circumcised Jews. Salvation was something really more for the Gentiles to think about, the outsiders, right? Those that had not been become proselytes or God-fearers. So they had a confidence in their ethnicity. They also had a confidence in their piety to the law, their observances of things like Sabbath, etc. So Nicodemus is coming to Jesus at night, curious, I think, about what Jesus has been doing and saying, and he's really under no uh, delusions or, or ideas that he's in any kind of danger of not belonging to God or being part of God's work in this world. Now, Jesus, as he does so well, and he probably has done with every one of you before at one point, if you're a believer, is he's pushing on that security a little bit. He's kind of, kind of nudging it, going like Jenga, right? How, how secure are you, Nicodemus? So let's, let's look at the conversation, verse 2 of John 3. This man, Nicodemus, came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, it's a respectful term, we know that you are a teacher come from God. That's a pretty high uh, estimation in the words of Nicodemus. For, he says, no one can do these things or these signs that you do unless God is with him. So what Nicodemus is doing here is he's saying, hey, Jesus, here's what I see. Here's what we, the Pharisees, uh, the, the Sanhedrin, the high council, here's what we see. We see someone who is doing signs that appear to be from God. So what you to notice is that Nicodemus is talking about what he sees. And Jesus listens to what Nicodemus says he sees. Now notice Nicodemus has not asked a question here yet. He just made a comment. Okay, and then Jesus is going to answer the question Nicodemus has not asked. Because that's so Jesus, right? He, he brings up what he wants us to look at. So Jesus says, in verse three, Jesus answered him, truly, truly, 
I say to you, unless one is born, note it, born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. I mean, Jesus, Nicodemus just walks up seemingly, humbly, respectful, rabbi, we think you're sent from God, you're doing all these signs, and we, we see what you're doing. And Jesus says, unless you've been born again, you don't see anything. You're blind, right out of the gate. Oh, Jesus was so nice, wasn't he? Well, I think he was kind, but he was very forward in his estimations, particularly of the false religious hypocrites of his day. And uh, I don't know where Nicodemus is at, and I'm not going to speculate on that, but Jesus basically says, you don't see anything. And here's what Jesus says. He says, you need to be born again in order to see the kingdom of God. Now, Jesus specifically mentions the kingdom of God rather than the kingdom of Israel. Do you see that? Nicodemus's interest is in the kingdom of Israel. That's what the Jews of the day were focused on. We want to see the Davidic kingdom of Israel come back into power. We want to see Rome removed and this messianic person to come in and militarily just reestablish the glory days of Israel. Now, do you think it's any, any mistake that Jesus came in and he didn't talk about the kingdom of Israel? What did he talk about? The kingdom of God. He's trying to get Nicodemus to zoom out further than the national pride uh, and the ethnicity of the Jews. He's trying to get them to see, no, God's doing a whole new thing, a whole new kingdom, and this new kingdom, you don't see it. You don't see it because you haven't been born of it. So he's guiding the conversation here. And think about just how insulting this sort of is. It gets worse. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? So Nicodemus takes this sort of very literal wooden interpretation of Jesus's, what we know to be a metaphysical or a spiritual analogy that you need to be spiritually born again. Nicodemus goes, this is seriously, this is obviously outside of his categories, right? He doesn't know what to say. So he goes, how can I be born again? How can I be born a second time? Jesus answered in verse 5, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So now Jesus went from saying, not only can you not see the kingdom of God, Nicodemus, unless you've been born again, you cannot even enter the kingdom of God. So here you have this sort of secure or feeling secure, self-righteous, religious, pious Pharisee who feels pretty good about his place in the kingdom. And Jesus has just shaken that violently by saying, not only do you not see accurately, you don't even exist accurately. You're not even born into the right kingdom. You need to be born again of water and the spirit. And people argue about what water and spirit is. Some people think that's water baptism. Some people think that's referring to our physical birth. I don't think it's either of those. I think it's, it's, it's the water of the cleansing of the spirit and then the regenerative work of the Spirit. We'll talk more about that in a minute. Verse 6, Jesus goes on. He says, That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Now, when Jesus says flesh, he's not talking about materiality. Do you understand that? He's talking about the system of this world, the old age, the world in which Nicodemus really belonged to, the one he loved, the one he liked, the one where he got notoriety, the one where he had identity in. Jesus is saying, you have to die to that flesh world and be born again into a new world. Verse seven, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So it's a mysterious reality, okay? Uh, then he goes on, Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? In other words, Nicodemus goes like this, right? I don't understand this. This seems, this seems so different, Nicodemus would say. This seems so different than everything I've been taught, everything I've been raised on, everything I've been teaching myself. This is totally outside of my own thinking. To which Jesus, of course, would say, exactly. Because it's been imported. It's imported truth from heaven. Jesus is himself, the truth come from heaven to reveal these things. Jesus answers in verse 10, Are you a teacher of Israel and you do not understand these things? In other words... If you were looking clearly through spirit eyes, through being through born again thinking, born again visualizing, you would see exactly what's going on here, exactly what I'm talking about. But of course, Nicodemus at this point at least was not born again. He was born of the flesh. 
Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know, we bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. In other words, you you may think our message has credibility because of the signs, but you're not really believing it. You're not really buying into it. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. In other words, Nicodemus, you're really not going to get this unless you really tune into what I'm saying. And you really become born again of the Spirit. Now, I hate to stop here because it's right before all the famous verses that you're used to, John 3.16 and all that. But, but for the purposes of what we're doing this morning, I want to stop there because my point is simply this. My point is that Jesus didn't come into the world to do a tune-up. He didn't come into the world to do a freshen-up or a fix-up. He didn't come in for reformation, and he didn't come, he didn't come up for any kind of a, 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 a minor tweak. He came in for total new birth. Jesus is just dropping huge truth on Nicodemus. He's saying, you don't need to just get a little more righteous or do a little more scriptural observances or memorize a little more scripture. You need a whole new set of hardware. You need to become a new creature, born again of the water and of the spirit. So this morning, we're going to talk about spirit birth. This morning, we're going to talk about what it means to be born of the spirit. Now, we are in a culture that prizes inclusivity over reality. Have you noticed that? They prize inclusivity over reality. Your truth, my truth, we can all have truth. Everyone has a truth, and they're all true. That's called delusion, right? That's called we have no logic left in this world. We have prized inclusivity over reality, and we've, we've prized pluralism and relativism and syncretism over biblicism. And for that reason, this two-pronged binary that Jesus introduces, either you're of the flesh or you're of the spirit, is really unpopular among our culture. This idea that you either need to be born of the spirit or you're going to die in the flesh, that's really the message of the gospel. You need to be born again or you're going to die in the flesh. We have to understand, though, what that means and what the inner workings of that spirit life is that happens to the believer when they get saved. So the question that really Jesus is forcing on Nicodemus is, Nicodemus, how broken are you really? How broken is this world really? How deep systemically are the issues of this world and not just our geopolitical system and not just our, our, our national problems and not just our governmental problems and not just our physical problems or our social problems or whatever, but how deep are the, the deepest problems of this world? And again, so deep that we need to be born again. The whole world needs to get born again. It needs to get born again. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. Our question is, and I'll put it this way, what do we lose if we lose the Holy Spirit in regards to our salvation? What does the Holy Spirit do in salvation? Unfortunately, a lot of times we talk about the Holy Spirit, we go right to what he does in ministry, right to what he does in the gifts or in the church. And we're going to get there. I know that's the place where most of the questions are. What about speaking in tongues? What about prophecy? What about second baptism? What about, what about, what about? We're going to get there. But what we need to do is we need to say, but what does the Holy Spirit do at salvation? What does the Holy Spirit do at salvation? Then we could talk about what the Holy Spirit does after salvation. So this morning we're simply asking, what do we lose if we lose the Holy Spirit in salvation? And what does it mean to be born of the Spirit? And then I'm going to ask you, have you been born of the Spirit? Have you been born of the Spirit? And if not, why not? Have you been born of the Spirit? Why do you need to be Spirit-born? So today, if you want to learn some big words, today is going to be a pneumatology, which is the study of the Holy Spirit. Pneuma is the word, Greek word for Holy Spirit. A pneumatology within soteriology. Soteriology is the study of salvation. It's really important, you know, that we understand how salvation works. You know why I know it's important is because the New Testament authors talk about it a lot. They really want us to understand how salvation works, how God saves, and how each person of the Trinity works within salvation. So, so uh, a pneumatology within soteriology. We're going to talk about the Holy Spirit within salvation. That's our goal this morning. And I don't know if you guys ever have this moment. I had a moment yesterday. I was sitting on the couch, and it was kind of a nice, relaxing day with my family, and I was just watching my beautiful wife interact with my beautiful kids, and they were having this amazing moment talking about, I don't even, it doesn't even matter what they were talking about. I, just, I was just enjoying watching them and you know what I was, I was filled with? I was just filled with delight. I was filled with delight. 
And you know, one of the primary things preaching's supposed to do is not just to make us do stuff, it's to make us delight in stuff and the stuff that God does, the stuff that's been done for you. So my prayer for this morning is there's not gonna be a big, hey, go do this. It's gonna be a, hey, go look at this. Hey, remember this. This is how God saved you by his spirit. It's pretty cool. So we're gonna look at three works of the Holy Spirit in salvation. Three works of the Holy Spirit in salvation. If you wanna write down the first one, the Holy Spirit reassures us. The Holy Spirit reassures us. Why don't you turn to Ephesians chapter 1, <clears throat> verse 13. Ephesians 1, 13. We're going to be all over the place this morning. Now, Ephesians 1, just the context, Paul's gushing in the, like the longest sentence known to humankind. Um, he's gushing about what God has done in salvation, and he mentions all the three different members of the Trinity and how they work in salvation. But in verse 13 and 14 of Ephesians 1, Paul gets to the part where he talks about what the Holy Spirit does in salvation. I want you to see it. In him, verse 13, Ephesians 1, in him, that's Jesus, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, that's Jesus, listen, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So here's a little sequence I want you to see in here. Salvation looks like this. The gospel, that is the good news of Jesus Christ, which is the power to save. The gospel is introduced into someone's life and then when that gospel is reciprocated with belief, trust, saving faith, that person becomes saved. But how do they become saved? They become saved by the security of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit now secures us into that salvation. Now, that's a big theological metaphor out there, and I, and I want to bring it down. I want to use the way the Bible brings it down to help you understand it. There's four metaphors, and I gave them to you. You can write them in one at a time. There's four metaphors the New Testament gives us to understand this idea of assurance or security or reassurance that we get by the Holy Spirit. The first one's right here in the passage we just read, and it is the Spirit's, write it down, seal. The Spirit's seal. Not seal like the animal. Um, yeah, seal. Uh, just to, yeah, in case some of you were like, what does the Holy Spirit have to do with the seal? Stupid. Okay. Isn't that rain relaxing, by the way? Isn't that great? I love it. So, the Spirit's seal. Note, note it again, Ephesians 1, 13. In him, you also, when you heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So Paul introduces some metaphor, introduces an analogy, introduces some language here that helps us understand what it means that the Holy Spirit secures us. And the word is sealed. We've been sealed by the Holy Spirit. Now, this isn't the kind of seal like when you put your Tupperware on and you're like, oh, I can't get out. I'm inside of the, the box. It's been sealed. This is a different kind of seal. The picture that's supposed to be in your mind here is that of a wax seal. That in the old days when you would put a scroll, or in, uh, in our days, I guess, maybe an envelope, and you wanted to make sure that that was sealed by the author, by the owner, by the authority, you would put your signet into the wax seal, and it would confirm that that was sacred and only to be opened by whom it was to be opened by. There's lots of different pictures of this in Scripture. You can see one in the book of Daniel, when Daniel's thrown into the lion's den by King Darius. Darius put his seal, his signet, into the lion's den, signifying that if anybody opened that, besides Darius himself, they would have to answer to Darius. We've got some foosball going on downstairs. It's awesome. Um, in, in case anybody wants to play, uh, it's, it's foosball. You know, I steal the ball every week. Just so, it's so funny. I steal it and I put it on my, on my desk and then someone keeps buying more foosballs and putting it in there. And I steal it on Sunday. It's like part of my rhythm. It's awesome just for that reason. Um, anyways, because <laughs> I can hear it. This, this idea is that God is, he's stamped you with his sign, with his seal. That he has said, you are mine and I've put my signet on you, and I've put my signet in you. Remember the book of Revelation, and John is standing, and he sees these seven scrolls, and he's weeping because the seven scrolls represent the future destiny of the universe, and John is weeping because he says, who is worthy to open the scroll? And who is worthy? 
only Christ. Christ appears and he is worthy. He's the only one that can open the scroll. So this is the picture here is that by the Holy Spirit, when you got saved, the Holy Spirit has sealed you. Isn't that good news? And what that means is what has he sealed you with? He sealed you with the image of his son. That's why John said when he comes, we will be like him. He has sealed us with the image of his own son. Number two, the second uh, metaphor in the scripture, it's also here in Ephesians, is the spirit is the earnest. Write that down. The spirit is the earnest. The picture here, uh, you can see it in verse 14. He says, the spirit is not only the one who sealed the promise of the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So he's saying the Holy Spirit is not only a seal, the Holy Spirit is also a earnest. What's an earnest? An an earnest is a down payment. It's a partial payment. It is, it is a proof that you intend to follow through with what you said. So some years ago, my wife and I bought a house four years ago, and we had to set our earnest money down on the house so that we proved to the owner and to the bank that we were serious about buying the house. 11 years ago, almost, uh, I, after knowing my wife for really only a year, actually, we were only dating like three months, I went into the ring shop, and I picked out a ring, and I put it on layaway. Now, what did I have to do to put it on layaway? I had to put some money down. Now, I had every intention of paying that baby off and marrying this woman, and I did. That was the best thing I ever did, besides get saved, right? Okay, um, what did I do? I, I, I proved with my continual payments that I was interested in picking that ring up. So the Holy Spirit is God's way of showing you, hey, I have invested a down payment into your life, and it is my spirit. Not only has that spirit sealed you, it's proof. These are almost legal terms here. This is proof, guarantee, that he will come and get what he has started to invest in. Is that good news? Number three, third metaphor, is the spirit of adoption. For this one, we go to Romans 8, 14. You don't have to turn there. I'll just read it. The spirit of adoption. Romans 8, 14 says, For all who were led by the spirit of God are sons of God. Well, what does that tell us? You can't be led by the Spirit of God unless you're a son of God, okay? For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, listen, but you have received the spirit of adoption, the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, so not only are we sealed, not only do we have this earnest of the Holy Spirit, we have the spirit of adoption, which says, God, God says, I'm giving you my name. I'm drawing you into my family. You have become part of me. You've become part of me. We are adopted into the family. That's very good news. Fourth metaphor is the spirit is the first fruits. He's the first. This is a cool one. You got to really got to geek out on this. In fact, I would I would very much encourage you to Google this the rest of the day, all day. Uh, just kidding. <laughs> Tomorrow when you're supposed to be working, uh, Google it. The Spirit is the first fruits. I'm going to read you Romans 8:22. It says, "For we know," Paul says, "that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now." Did you know creation is groaning? I want to listen to this rain for a minute. Just take a second, and listen to it. Do you hear the sadness? I'm not joking. Do you hear the sadness? I remember Dr. McGee, J. Vernon McGee, he was talking about how a creation plays in a minor key. You ever notice that when the wind goes through the trees? There's, there's like a longing in creation. What's it longing for? It's longing to be completed. So Paul here is saying in Romans 8, 22, he says, for we know that the whole creation is groaning together. All of creation is waiting for this conclusion this finalization. And 23, not only the creation, but we ourselves, listen, who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved. So Paul here uses another metaphor. He says the Spirit of God is like first fruits. Well, what's first fruits? If you do a little bit of study on this, first of all, it's an agricultural term. 
The first fruits is the first sign of what the produce and, and, the, and the productivity of the future crop is going to be. When you have good first fruits, you have good crop. But there's a lot more to this that you could nerd out on if you want. This is kind of a side note here. But there was a feast that the Jews had called the Feast of First Fruits. It was the same week as the Feast of Passover. In fact, it was a few days later. It would have been almost exactly the moment at which Jesus was resurrected from the dead. And then 50 days later, there was another feast. And that feast, the Feast of Weeks, was the feast where they celebrated the fullness of the harvest. Do you know what else the Feast of Weeks is called? Pentecost. So Jesus is the first fruits, and Pentecost was the whole harvest. But in the same way, in our lives, the Holy Spirit is just the beginning. It's just the beginning of the, the full fullness of what God is going to do. The Spirit of God, he's invested in you. It's the first fruits. It's the first down payment, first installment of the spiritual life that God is bringing and will continue to bring through you. Isn't that cool? Isn't that exciting? Sam, why does all this matter? Well, it should matter because I don't know about you guys, but throughout the day, multiple times, I'm, I'm sort of feeling insecure. And I don't mean in terms of um, my image. Or, I mean, I'm feeling insecure in regards to God's love for me. Insecure in, in regards to whether God has accepted me or whether I need to go do more. And when, when you feel that, I want you to stop and I want you to remember these four metaphors. I want you to stop and you, I want you to go, now, if you're a believer, if you're not a believer, then you should be worried, okay? Um, if you're a believer, I want you to stop and I want you to go, I'm sealed. God has put his signet ring. There is no higher authority that could open what God has sealed. He has sealed me. That's why I don't believe, I don't believe believers are going to somehow accidentally get the mark of the beast. You already have a seal. It's called the Holy Spirit. You've been marked. God has given you his mark. You're his kid. And then I want you to stop and I want you to go, Oh, I've been adopted. I've been adopted. I mean, I'm part of God's family. And I want you to remember, the spirit of God in my life is, is the first fruits. It's the first fruits. And it's the down payment. God has proven that he loves me. He's proven that he's accepted me because I see the spirit of God in my life. The Spirit is the way that we have security as believers to know that God has in fact saved us and called us his own. So you can know whether you're a fruit tree by looking at the root, right? You can know whether you are a fruit tree by looking at the fruit. Is the Spirit of God at work in my life? Has the Spirit of God come into my life? That's a way that we can know. So, number one on your handout, the three works of the Holy Spirit in salvation. The first was the Holy Spirit reassures us. Now, number two, write it down. The Holy Spirit recreates us. Now, this is a really cool one. The Holy Spirit recreates us. Why don't you turn to Titus chapter 3, verse 5 through 7. Titus chapter 3, verse 5 through 7. <clears throat> Bless you. Here's what. Paul says to Titus, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, okay? He saved us, not because of anything we've done, not because of our own righteousness, but because of his mercy. Okay, Paul, give it, give it to me practically. How is that mercy applied? Well, he says, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The words I want you to focus on in there in verse five are this washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Paul, what do you mean by that? Well, Paul is using very vivid, uh, very physical, very picturable language here to help us understand a very metaphysical idea, which is that when you get saved, you are washed and regenerated. Well, what's regenerated? What, what's the root word in there? Think about it. What's the root word in regenerated? Genesis. Regenesis. You've been born again. Where do we get the idea of born again believers? Right here in many other places, okay? We've been born again. How are we born again? We're born again by the work of the Spirit of God. 
It's exactly what Jesus was telling Nicodemus about. You need to get this, he says. And the Spirit not only washes us, meaning he not only takes away our sin, he also gives us a newness of life. Okay, the Spirit not only applies our justification, he applies our holiness, our, 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 our new uh, cleanness. Uh, let me give you an example. Uh, some years ago, I bought a backpacking backpack. It, it's been a great pack. I've had it for like eight years now. And, and a couple of years ago, I left the strap hanging out of the back. And when we were finishing up a trip, and I slammed the tailgate, and I broke the clip. Aren't you guys sad for me? Aren't you? You want to take a minute and pray for me? Um, and I was like, dang it, you know. Uh, and, and I'm like, shoot. And then I remembered that the manufacturer has this lifetime guarantee or something. So, so I sent the picture of the, the broken buckle and I sent it to uh, the manufacturer and I said, can I get a new belt? And they, they said, yeah. And like eight weeks later, they sent me a new one. Great. So I put it on. But, you know, it wasn't really the exact one didn't really match, wasn't quite the right size, so it worked. But, you know, and also by this time, I, I got some, some, some holes and little things, and my other little things have broken. And, and so, is it, is it work? Like, yeah, it works. It's been redeemed. But guys, listen, salvation is so much more than that. God's salvation is so much more than like, yeah, you, you know, you, you got some stains, and you're, you're kind of broken and busted, but, but hey, you know what? You work. Salvation is God gave you a whole new backpack. Do you understand that? You're saying, Sam, I'm, I'm still in my old backpack. Um, every time I get up, I feel it. Okay, spiritually, you're going to get a new backpack. You've been given positionally, positionally, in, in your deepest part of who you are as a being, you have been given a whole new life. Do you see yourself that way? Or do you just sort of see yourself as like a stained, broken vessel that's been redeemed? Yeah, I was at a yard sale and God bought me. Yay. Like, no, God, God's given you a whole new life. A whole, I mean, like, I've cleaned a lot of bathrooms in my life. I used to work at a camp, and that's what we do every weekend for camps, we clean bathrooms. And, and there's a lot of bathrooms out there that are clean, but they sure don't look clean. Have you noticed that? Okay, God didn't save you in such a way where he's like, yeah, you're clean, but you really aren't. I mean, you, you are clean, like, but you're not. Like, God's given, he, he is born, he, he's made us born again, regenerated, newness of life. You need to see yourself that way. That's what Paul's saying here. Washing and regeneration. 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 And renewal of the Holy Spirit. It's not just restoration. It's recreation. Isn't that cool? It's recreation. And and where do we get this idea? I mean, where did this happen? How does this happen? Well, because of the resurrection. You know, the resurrection is largely misunderstood. We think Jesus climbed out of the grave. We think, oh, yeah, like he just was resuscitated. No, he was resurrected, which means he was given a new body. It was like his old one, and it had some remnants from it. He still had the scars on his hand, but, but it was a new 2.0 new body, right? And so in the same way, because of Jesus' resurrection, we now have resurrection life available to us. And we are born again into the resurrection life of Christ. In a few weeks, we're going to celebrate the resurrection here on Easter, right? And that's exciting. And what do we do two days or three days before that? We have Good Friday. We look at the cross and we look at the resurrection. Jesus' resurrection is the new birth of a new humanity with a new Adam for a new eternity and a new kingdom and a new world. Isn't that cool? Regenesis. This is really important stuff. Sam, what does it matter? Why does it matter? I'll tell you. Uh, Actually, Paul tells you in 2 Corinthians 5.16. He says, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, meaning his body, his earthly body, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, listen, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. This isn't about getting away from material things and not having a physical body. No, your resurrected body is going to be physical. This is about the old world, the old broken world. This is about not regarding ourselves anymore in the flesh. We are to regard ourselves and other believers as in the spirit, meaning they are new, new creation. You know, one of the unintended consequences, I think, of the hardline purity culture that came out around the early 2000s, even 90s, and courting and all this kind of stuff, um, there's nothing wrong with pursuing holiness. 
but, but there can be this obsession with, with oh, oh, you know, I'm only going to marry someone if they're a virgin. Or I'm only, I'm only going to marry someone if they've done this and this. And if I haven't saved myself, then, then oh man, I've blown it. And you know, there's all those analogies like, like, like pass the rose around or whatever. And look, who wants to marry that? I've preached those sermons to kids. You know, if you, if you don't save yourself, you're just a soiled garment. The problem with that is that is not regarding the reality of resurrection life. That's not regarding how new someone can be made in Christ. You may have done terrible things in your life, but if you are in Christ, you are new. You are brand new. And soon, friends, you're going to get a body that matches your soul. You're going to get a new body that matches your new spirit. Isn't that good news? And we're just waiting for that. So, number three. The, whole, the third work of the Holy Spirit in salvation. This one's really cool, so tune in. The Holy Spirit also, number three, write it down. The Holy Spirit relocates us. He ro- relocates us. If there's one thing that the New Testament is, New Te- man, I'm dyslexic today. The New Testament authors really wanted us to get, it was this idea that we need to be in Christ, if you come across that language in the New Testament, you need to be in Christ, okay? I want to show you just a few examples of that. 1 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, okay, we just looked at that. In Christ, he is a new creation. Ephesians 1.13. In Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel uh, of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed. Romans 8.1. This is an important one. There is therefore now no condemnation. For who? For those who are in Christ. So it's pretty important to be in Christ. What does it mean to be in Christ? How do we get in Christ? It's pretty ethereal language. Kind of reminds you of the conversation Jesus had with Nicodemus. How do, how do I get into that? Or climb back in my mother's womb? How do I get into Christ? I mean, how does that work? These are very ethereal concepts, but, but they're also very tangible. Uh, let me show you one more thing. John, flip to John 15, 1 through 7. I, I, I've taught this passage so many times. And I thought I understood it until this week. And, and I realized I don't, I don't think I understood it before. This is a passage you're really familiar with. It's where Jesus is talking to his disciples right before he goes to the cross and he's trying to explain to them uh, this abiding relationship they need to have with him. So John 15, one through seven, he says, uh, I am the true vine. And there's a whole other sermon on that. Israel was referred to as a vine. Jesus is saying, I, I'm the real Israel. I'm the real fulfillment. I'm the full fulfillment of Israel. And everything in me, everything that's going to come out of me is the ultimate fulfillment. I'm the true vine. That's another sermon. And my father is the vine dresser. Every branch, note it, in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from you, or apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. What do you think? Is it important that we be found in Christ? And is it important that Christ be found in us? Does it seem to you, and this, is what, this was the light bulb for me this week, does it seem to you a little bit like Jesus is mixing his metaphors here? How is a branch in a vine? Shouldn't it be on? Shouldn't it be abide on me? That's how I've always preached this. My sermons on this have always been, you need to hold on to Jesus. And is that true? Yes, of course. I've always preached it about sort of an active saving or an active choice to continue to have faith in the Lord. You know, but, but Jesus didn't say abide on me, did he? He didn't say hold on to me here. What did he say? Abide in me. But how does a branch abide in the vine? I think Jesus is using a strange word for the metaphor. And I think it's because he's, he wants it to go further than just hold on to me like a branch. What Jesus is trying to get us to understand here is that if we're going to be part of the vine, we have to come in to Jesus. 
Okay, Sam, but you still haven't told me what that is, what that means. Well, the New Testament authors tell us. Ephesians 2, 5, by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And then Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. Paul does this weird thing where he talks about the resurrection and he talks about the Christ and he, he talks about the cross and he says, you were there. He says, I've been crucified with Christ. What does he mean by that? And then he says, we're seated with Jesus. How is that possible? How am I seated with Jesus? How am I on the cross with Christ? And the answer is because you have been brought in to Jesus by the Holy Spirit. I don't think I could say it better than this guy did, David Garner. He said it this way in a, in a Gospel Coalition article on this very thing. He says, listen, as the agent of salvation, the Holy Spirit gives Christ and all the redemptive blessings he has secured to the people of God. The Spirit applies to the church what Christ has accomplished for the church. Salvation is purposed by the Father, accomplished by the Son, and applied by the Holy Spirit. Without the Spirit's agency in salvation, all that Christ has accomplished brings no value to us. As Scripture uniformly presents, listen, the Spirit graciously, effectively, and permanently gives us Christ Jesus and every blessing he has secured. Our salvation is in Christ alone. Our salvation is by his Spirit alone. He is the, the Spirit is the vital bonding agent, the glue of the gospel, securing sinners immediately and permanently to Christ Jesus. Do you see what he's saying here? He's saying that Jesus did some stuff on the cross. He made atonement for your sins. He resurrected, meaning he started a whole new life. But how do I get that work into my life? The Holy Spirit. You see, the Holy Spirit is the agent of actually applying those things and making them part of our life. The Holy Spirit brings us into union with Christ. Everything that Christ did now becomes united with us. The Spirit draws us into Christ. I know it's kind of ethereal, but it's a New Testament idea. So what does that mean? It means if I'm in Christ, then it's no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me. If I'm in Christ, that means God the Father's not looking at me through my mess-ups. He's looking at his son because I'm in Christ. I'm in the resurrection. I'm in the cross. It's all been applied to me. Everything Jesus did is now mine because the Holy Spirit, like glue, has made it fused to my life. Isn't that good news? So when Jesus says you need to abide in me, he's not necessarily talking about walking in faith. He's talking about being born again. You see it that way and you go back and read. Jesus was encouraging these disciples who I think were born again, but he's saying, hey, the, the whole thing is that you need to literally be brought into the life of me as the vine. And that happens at the baptism of the believer. When you are born again, baptized in the spirit, immersed in everything the spirit of God is doing. And not only do we become part of him, he becomes part of us. He comes into us. Look at uh, Corinthians 13, five. It says, examine yourself to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourself or do you not realize this about yourself, that, that Jesus Christ is in you? How is he in me? By the Holy Spirit. He's in you by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God has brought the Spirit of Christ into you. Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I live, but Christ who lives in me. So, I know this is kind of big ideas, but what you need to remember is that without the Holy Spirit, Jesus' justification would be great, but it wouldn't be applied to you. Jesus' regeneration would be great, but it wouldn't be applied to you. You wouldn't be brought into it. The Holy Spirit has actually brought you into oneness with this work of God. So let me put it very simply. The real question, guys, listen to me. The real question is not, are you a spiritual person? The real question is, are you a person who has been born of the Spirit? That's the question Jesus is trying to get Nicodemus to ask. And we live in a culture that loves spirituality, don't we? Everybody, I told you this before, everybody loves to tell me how spiritual they are. I'm spiritual. I'm a spiritual person. I don't care. Have you been born of the Spirit? Have you been born of the Spirit? Has the Spirit of God taken the work of Christ on the cross and the regenerative work of Christ in the resurrection and actually applied it to your account? That's all that really matters. 
Have you believed the gospel? Has the good news of the gospel been applied to your life by the Holy Spirit? You need to be born again of the Spirit. You need to be born into an entirely new humanity. That's what matters. Romans 8.8 is probably one of the most misquoted and misunderstood verses in the Bible. And it says this, it says, for those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Have you heard that verse? And people teach that, especially youth groups. If you're, if you're in the flesh, if you're sinning, you're not pleasing God. If you're doing wrong things, you're not pleasing God. Now, is there some truth to that? Yeah, but that's not what Paul's saying here. He's not saying if you do good things, you please God. If you do bad things, you're displeasing to God. He is saying, read on in in verse 9 of Romans 8, he says, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. He's not talking about doing spiritual things. He's talking about being a Spirit-born person. So either you're born of the flesh or you're born of the Spirit. One quick last point here. The Spirit not only brings you into Christ and brings Christ into you. This is important. He brings you into the body of Christ. The Spirit of God, when you are born again, brings you into union with, look around, with the church, the body of Christ. You have become one with the body. That's why we're here. That's why we're gathering. We need each other, okay? So, so what? Now what? Let's, let's step back and, and let's think, how does this apply? And what I want to do is I want to give you six ways to not benefit from everything I just said, okay? Six ways to not benefit from the understanding of the work of the Spirit in salvation. Let me put it this way. Let me help you live a Holy Spirit deficient life regarding His work in your salvation. Let me give you six ways to not let what was just told to you nourish your spiritual life into growth and maturity. Six ways. Number one, give yourself the credit for finding the truth and believing in the gospel. Think, go through your life thinking, I am just so much more enlightened than these pagans that I work with. They just didn't see it. I saw it. Or you could think rightly and go, I'm an idiot. The Spirit of God has illuminated these things to me. The Spirit of God has given me truth. Thank you, God. Thank you, Lord, for this kindness. Would you do the same for those that I'm working with? So if you want to live a Holy Spirit deficient life, just, just think that you're really, you're really something. Number two, count on yourself and look to yourself to get yourself all the way to the end in your Christian life. Count on yourself to, to do it. Just, just don't recognize the seal of the Spirit in your life. Just find assurance in your own grit and your own determination rather than the Holy Spirit's investment in your life. Just get up every day and go, I know I'm going to make it to the end because I am really determined. And I have a lot of spiritual fervor. And I'm pious. And I seek the Lord. And I love the Lord. So I'm going to, I'm going to make it to the end. Just get up and think that to yourself every day. And you will have an existential crisis when you sin really bad. And you go, uh-oh. We're, we're, as believers, we're to wake up every morning, God, thank you that you're holding me. Thank you that you've sealed me. Thank you that you've adopted me. Thank you that you're holding on to me, that you're keeping me, that you're working through me, that even the good works that I'm producing, they're works that you've prepared before me to walk in. Thank you, God, that it's you. You're the vine. I'm just the branch. And Lord, I believe that you birthed this new life in me and because you birthed this life in me, you're gonna carry it to full term. You're gonna deliver this birth. You're gonna bring it into reality. You're gonna bring me all the way to the end. I believe because you made an investment in me and it's your investment and it's your spirit that you are gonna bring a full harvest out of that. Not because of anything I've done, but because of your goodness, your kindness, and your graciousness. Third way, continue to see yourself as your old self. This is like one of the number one things that Christians do. And as a pastor, you know, I, I don't have any secret wisdom. I just tell people the gospel. That's all I do. You know, you, you're, you're going to wake up every day and you're going to feel shame. You're going to see your scars. You're going to see your, your, your stains. You're going to see the, the fact that you were someone who walked in the flesh. And you have to choose every day. Will I see myself as a new creation? Or will I continue to let the condemnation of this old life rule me? So if you want to live a Holy Spirit deficient life, just keep seeing your old self in the mirror. 
Don't see the Spirit's regenerative and cleansing work on you. Keep trying to scrub the walls. Just keep scrubbing. Instead of tuning in to the fact that God's given you a whole new wall. And you need to see that. Number four. Fourth way to live a Spirit-deficient life. Uh, Let the riches of what Christ accomplished in his death, resurrection, and ascension be ethereal ideas and distant concepts. It's one of the biggest mistakes we do with theology. We take big thoughts and we go, oh yeah, that's a thought. Rather than, you know, don't believe that the Spirit has actually immersed you into these things. Don't see these things as real. Don't see the seal of God as real. Don't see God the Spirit as real. Just let, let these ideas be nothing but ideas. Don't live in light of them. Don't fill your screen with them. Don't, don't orient your life around them. Just let them be ideas floating out in theology books and you'll live a spirit-deficient life. Number five, don't see yourself as being spiritually connected to the body of Christ. You want to you shrivel up as a believer? Don't look around you and say, these people, I am eternally and spiritually born into a family with these people. These people matter. These people have something to offer me, and it's the Spirit of God and the gospel. I need this family. You know, Christians are like, yeah, I could take or leave the church. I could take or leave it. No, you, you actually can't because you've been born into it. You can't take or leave it. God gave it to you, and he gave you to it. There's a, there is a very real bond there. Lastly, if you want to live a Holy Spirit division life, don't see the Spirit of Christ as abiding in you. See, think of God and the Father and God the Son as distant in heaven with other things to do. Think of the Spirit as a whimsical mist that clearly shows up at revivals, only, only shows up at revivals. It's the only place the Holy Spirit is. And he's, he's clearly not in your life because obviously he's at Osbury right now. I'm not saying that's not real. I'm not saying God's not working. But, but we think of the Holy Spirit and we think, oh, he's just like, he's just somewhere else. No, he's in you because you've been born into the Spirit, by the Spirit, okay? That's, it's really important that you see that. It's very easy sometimes to focus on all the things we should do in Christianity, but what I'm encouraging you to do this morning is to think of all the things you need to delight in, all the things the Spirit of God has done in you, all the things he's doing in you. Isn't it a great salvation that we've been saved by? God the Father has elected us, chosen us, called us. Jesus has paid for us, lived the perfect life for us, the Spirit of God has actually actualized all that. The Godhead, God three in one, has made this great plan of salvation. And we as believers are recipients of that great salvation. And if you're in here this morning and you have not been born of the Spirit, you're going to die in the flesh. There is no tuning up your life. There is no fixing up your life. There's no tweaking a few things. You are systemically broken and you need the new life of Jesus Christ to be given to you by the Spirit through, listen, saving faith. Not lip service, but wholehearted trust to say, God, I now sign over all the rights to my life and I choose to trust you. That's saving faith. And when you do that, you become born again. And water baptism just symbolizes that, really. Water baptism Shows us, not only we've been washed, but we've been born again. You see it? That's the message of the gospel. Father, thank you so much for your spirit. Thank you that he is active and working right now. Thank you for everything that he has done in salvation for each person, each believer in this room. God, I pray for anybody in here that is just curious about what this message is and what the Bible says. pray that you would draw them by your spirit right now. And I pray that they would come, talk to me, talk to somebody, receive salvation, be born again by the spirit. God, I pray for our time of discussions right now. Lord, that you would lead us and, and guide us, Father, into wisdom and truth. That, Lord, we would encourage one another, Lord, in this discussion. And, Father, that we would be able to be the body and operate like the body this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.